I said, didn't you ever think that maybe you just weren't cut out for this? After failure, after failure, after failure. And he just said, no, I just knew there was, I just felt that I could do it. And so part of the lesson, you know, one lesson is that early failure doesn't mean necessary long-term failure. And the other lesson, I guess, is to be a market wizard, you have to have uh, perseverance. Welcome to the F9 Podcast with me, Stephen Goldstein, and my co-host, Mark Randall. Today, joining us on the podcast is author of the Market Wizards series of books and the new book, Unknown Market Wizards, Jack Schrager. Before we start this week's episode, a quick word about our podcast partner, the Society of Technical Analysts, the STA. The STA are the world's oldest body serving the trading community for the advancement of technical analysis and price action knowledge and education. They are a not-for-profit community open to members from around the world. The STA offer outstanding publications, talks, webinars and conferences and have partnered with some of the world's leading academic bodies to provide top quality training and education courses, programs and diplomas. As part of our partnership with the STA, listeners of the Alphamine podcast can get a 100 British pounds or local currency equivalent discount on the cost of their superb home study course and diploma program. To find out more about this, visit the home study page at the top of the Alphamind blog. You can find that at alphamindblog.blogspot.com or just Google Alphamind blog. Also, a quick word about some of the coaching and developmental services we offer to people in the trading and investment world. The Alphamind Trader Performance Coaching Program has been delivered to leading traders and investment professionals across the financial markets over the past 10 years and helps them to develop their risk capability and their risk processes and improves how they manage with the psychological and emotional aspects of engaging with financial market risk. As well as working with retail clients, our clients include global hedge funds, asset management firms, investment banks, energy and commodity trading businesses. We also offer a suite of other services, including AlphaMind Mental Strength Development Coaching, which is based on programs we have delivered to senior executives at some of the world's largest corporations, as well as to traders and investment specialists. We also offer high quality executive and performance coaching programs to leaders and managers from across the financial markets and beyond. To find out more about our work, visit our partner site, alphaarcubed.com. That's the word alpha, the letter R, and the word cubed.com. Or email info at alphaarcubed.com. Now on with the podcast. Welcome to this week's Alpha Mind podcast, and we're delighted to have Jack Swager with us. Yep. Jack Swager, Market Wizards fame. Jack is back. Jack is back with a new book called Unknown Market Wizards, which continues in the three-decade tradition of the hugely popular Market Wizards series, interviewing exceptionally successful traders to learn how they achieved their extraordinary performance results. The twist is, in Unknown Market Wizards, is that featured traders are individuals trading their own accounts. They are unknown to the investment world. Until now, of course, these traders have achieved performance records that rival, if not surpass, the best performance managers. Jack, tell us more. Tell us more, perhaps to start with, about Jack Swager. Thumbnail sketch. Um, uh, you know, academically uh, graduate uh, degree in economics. Uh, started out as an analyst in the futures markets. Spent about 22 years as a research director in futures. Uh, 10 years with a hedge fund advisory firm in London, 
although I was a token American and I was not in London, I would just travel every quarter. Uh, Co-founded the Fundseeder, which is uh, a technology company providing a platform for traders to analyze their results and use various tools, uh, basically a free site so we can discover trading talent, some of which are in this book. And over the course of uh, all of that, uh, I've uh, written, uh, I guess, 11 books, and the five of them being on the market wizard theme. So that's, uh, that's the shortest version I can make for a long career. Terrific. And, and um, welcome, to the, uh, welcome to the podcast, Jack. And a, a pleasure to have you. <laughs> um, I've, uh, well, I've met you before, but you know, I'm so excited about having you on. First of all, because I've read all your books and I still have my first copy here. Yeah, that's from about 1989 when it first came out. When I was a young trader trying to make my way in the London markets, and I've still got the yellow post-it notes, and no one can, you can see there, and, and lots of marks in there. You've got to say that's a, it's a credit to the, uh, the 3M post-it notes company that <laughs> they're still in there. Um, and of course, I'm so excited about this new run because I've actually got a couple of, uh, I've got three clients that I've coached over the years featured in the book. Um, so it adds a special, a special element to it. Um, but I, I, I'm really curious is, is what drove you to start writing the Market Wizards book? So, um, originally my first book and most people, most people think my first book was, was Market Wizards. It was not. Uh, about five years before that came out, I took a sabbatical. And I wrote a book called The Complete Guide to the Futures Markets, um, which wasn't, you know, my my answer to the uh, observation that I didn't think there was a decent book on analysis of futures markets out there. So I might as well write my own because I, when I started out, I was looking for something. I didn't think any of them were any good. So um, I took sabbatical to write that book. And for what it was, which was, you know, a big analytical book, it was successful. It was good. But. Uh, I wasn't a popular, you know, it wasn't a popular audience book. Was, uh, so anyway, uh, I got, I had the idea because I got involved in, tra- uh, in research in the futures. That's it, not, it's a short step to then want to trade yourself. And I had the idea that, gee, you know, probably a neat idea to go across the country and interview the best traders and kind of ask them how they do it and sort of, you know, I could become a better trader. <laughs> myself by doing this project. Plus, it just seemed like a fun fun project. But I was working as a full-time research director, and that's that's more than a typical nine-to-five job by itself. So it just was something, it was an idea I had. I think I even had the title, but I just it just sat there for several years. And then I got invited to uh, lunch with a, another publisher, and they pitched me this idea, hey, we really like this analytical book you did. We think you'd be great to be an editor-in-chief of this whole series, you know, one book on each market, analyzing each market. I said, look, I, I've done that. I don't want to do it again. You know, I'm going to do anything, you know, else. I, this is exactly the opposite direction I want. They were talking about high-priced books, you know, for small audience, right, for each of those books. And, and I said, I want to go the other way. I want to write something, you know, more mainstream, wider audience. And I told them, look, I have, I have this idea, and I told it to them. And I said, great. Do it. So that was a catalyst. Otherwise, who knows if I ever would have gotten around to it. Were you, were you surprised with the success of the first one? Uh, you know, 
I, I thought it was good. I thought <laughs> I, I had an objective. Uh, I had an objective of writing a book that would have lasting appeal or or be meaningful. Because um, I do remember. I don't remember if I put it in the preface of the original Mark Wizard's book. I have to go back and check. Uh, but I did have. I know I felt at the time that I had read a, a book called Reminiscences of a Stock Operator, written back in the twenties. And I thought, gee, you know, somebody, and this is this is a book that's kind of talking in the air in the era of uh, Jesse Livermore. You know, supposedly, the protagonist is Jesse Livermore. It's back in the time of bucket shop, so it's a bit ancient in that respect. But there are many quotes in that book where the protagonist is speaking about trading, and it just rang so true. And this, you know, I was reading it 65, 70 years later. So my goal really was to write a book, not that not oriented just to the present moment, but something that tried to capture truths about trading that hopefully would, would, would be as pertinent, you know, 65 or 70 years later. So the fact that it, that was my objective, I, I don't know if I was surprised that that it meant that, uh, but, you know, <laughs> but I, I was shooting for a long-term, long-term meaning to the book. This is the fifth in the standard format, and I did one called The Little Book of Market Wizards, uh, yeah. After the last, after the previous uh, uh, traditional format, market was spoken. That was like a summary of, you know, a narrative summary of some of the key things I learned doing the other books. Yeah, I, I just love the style of them. I mean, I just love the fact you just go through the trades. You know, you just reflect directly at just the process. Uh, and so the narrative feels as though you we're listening to you know the likes originally of the, the original book you know Richard Richard Dennis and uh, Paul Tudor Jones and, and Ed Sequoia all those types of people you were bringing them to life and then of course after the dialogue you then went and did sort of a, a conclusive several pages of just bringing um, from your point of view some of the qualities that were really really important and I, and I think what strikes me about your current book. Actually, there's huge overlap. If you look at the successful people, um, you know you could almost take take the quotes and mix them up across the whole series, and they could be from all of them. You know, even the people that we consider to be unknown, they've kind of like nailed the process that you could lift up and say, well, actually, you could ascribe that quote to to one of the what we could consider the greats. But it was just this guy that's come up through his own process. So, yeah, I think it's, it's super readable, and I, I'd encourage everyone. That that's not read your, your your books, particularly if they're if they're new to the market, you know, as well as picking up Edwards Edwards and McGee and those types of books, get get your stuff in portfolio because you'll learn so much wisdom. Oh, thank you. One of my questions, one of my thoughts, first of all, was, you know, how fresh this book feels. I was I was amazed by that. I just got this, you know, it's it's almost like. Uh, um, you know, I suppose there must have been a danger you felt of just repeating everything. Yeah, well, look, some, you know, many truths about trading sort of, they're truths because, you know, they, they don't change over time. I mean, they're, so it's not surprising that a lot of the traits that I pick up from the original market was just over 30 years ago are are shared in some way by the traders I, I interviewed in this book. So that part of it is not surprising. Uh, I, I do have a goal. I'm not only trying to communicate important lessons about trading, but an equally important goal for me, and you know, I'm writing these books, I want to please myself as well, 
is I want them to be interesting. So I want to, so, you know, I'll throw away, I'll throw away interviews where even if there's something useful trading wise, but if it's really deadly dull, I, I mean, there's just nothing of life in the interview that I can make, make interesting to me. Then I won't use it. Cause I, you know, I personally actually don't like interview articles, you know, typically. Yeah. I, I will usually not read interview articles. Uh, it's not the point, but the idea what I'm trying to do is, is I'm using that format, but I'm trying to create narratives, you know, from the traders. So it's not so much the interview uh, as it is getting them to open up about everything, you know, their, their life, their, their failures, you know, everything. So, so it, it, it is important because I think it has much more staying power if the person seems like a real person than if it's just you're reading, you know, like a cookbook thing of do this, do that, you know, so, so that is a, that, that is part of, part of the thing I'm trying to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, you certainly achieved that and, you know, and, and the, the interviews were so different as well. Chris Camillo, I mean, I just thought that was a brilliant interview and that, that was something that it, it could never have been done that way in the first book. No, I mean, it didn't exist. So, yeah. So just for context here, um, Chris Camillo, well, I, before doing this book, I had the impression, not the impression, it kind of, uh, I'll use an analogy here. You throw a coin up in the air, you expect it's going to be heads, it's going to be tails. It never enters into your mind that sideways, landing sideways is, is, a, is a possible outcome or is in the universe of anything to consider. So it, the analogy to trading is I always basically just, you know, all this, fundamental types of approaches and there are technical types of approaches. They can be very different. You know, technical could be charts, it could be systems, it could be, but it, you know, those are the two general spheres and you know, what else? There is nothing else. You know, how else, yeah, how else, anything you train, I naturally assume got to be one of those, got to fall in one of those two spheres. Well, it turns out Chris Camillo, it falls into neither and neither is actually the chapter title. Um, yeah. And probably the audience, you know, is, is going to wonder what the hell, well, what the hell could he be doing? It's not, and he does, and to be clear, he doesn't use fundamentals at all. No fundamentals at any time. He doesn't care about earnings reports, or, you know, any of this stuff. Uh, he doesn't use, uh, he doesn't use tech charts. He doesn't, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't even, doesn't even know where the, sorry, where the price is relative to the broad range. Doesn't enter whether the price is at, at highs or at lows or, it has nothing to do with his approach. So how the hell does he do it? Well, the thing is, he latched on to social media as as a way of uh, identifying trades. So he used to do it manually originally, but eventually he built a company that developed the software for himself so he could make it more efficient. Uh, but essentially what he's doing, he's picking up on social media spikes in conversation to identify uh, potential trends, and he, as he says, he's not trying to predict anything. He's just trying to identify what's happening now quicker than anybody else. So, for example, I mean, lots of examples in the book, but let's throw out just one one example. Um, when we were going some number of years ago, where we'd gone through transition from people getting turned off to sugared sodas to starting to drink sparkling waters of different types. So he kind of picked up on that very early, and there's a company called 
uh, National Beverage Company, which was a uh, manufacturer of LaCroix. And he saw this spike of conversation about people talking about this product. And that turned him on to this trade in its infancy, you know. So, uh, and certainly well before earnings reports, but even before uh, it would show up in credit card transactions, because some sophisticated hedge fund managers sort of get the credit credit card data so they can identify pre-earnings, have some shot at it. But he, his, he's trying, he preceded that. So by using social media, he was able to identify the these trades at their infancy, and he's done enormously well. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I got a sense of, and I, I made a note of this, and I thought this was very profound. He said, I, I'm not trying to predict the future. I'm trying to accurately and quickly depict the present. I'm not trying to predict what people would do, but rather identify what they are doing right now, what they are interested in right now, what they are buying right now. And I just, I actually thought this is a bit like the Keynesian beauty contest, where kids used to say, you know, it's not the prettiest face that matters. It's it's what you think other people think is the prettiest face. Yeah, uh, well, that actually, that thought applies more to another interview in the book by Jeff Newman, where he identifies these trends very early, completely differently. I mean, just by where things. Uh, but there, his approach is to identify these things very early, gets in really early, just an initial breakout, something like 3D printing. And a lot of the, as I was going for the interview, it, it struck me that a lot of these trades he was talking about, these major sector trades, sectors he defines his own sector, like 3D printing was one of his extremes. So, you know, he ends up writing it. And, he, and, you know, and most of the trades he mentioned in that chat, in, in that interview, ultimately they went all the way back down, except, of course, he used the same, you know, awareness of, of when the thing was sort of getting too popularized and overextended and typically got out on the distribution top or when it started to break down. Um, so he, he had these incredibly 10 to one type trades by identifying things, even though the particular item he, he identified or sector he identified went all the way back to where it started. So that's your, that's your perfect analogy to the, to the Keynes beauty contest. It's not picking the prettiest girl, but whoever who you think everybody else is going to pick as, as the prettiest. So um, that's, that's the perfect analogy you know, in regards to him. And, and going back to Camillo, he actually, in the beginning, he wasn't just a, he, preceding the social media. It, there's a Peter Lynch element to this. So Peter Lynch um, sort of, when he wrote his book, uh, he kind of made a point that, you know, trade what you know, invest in what you know, be observant. And and sort of when I listened to some of the things that his trade, so, so Chris um, lives in Texas, which is kind of, representative in a way of uh of the u.s it's kind of a has a bits of everything in it and um he talked about seeing these people standing online to go to uh a cheesecake factory or uh or a pf chang you know a chinese restaurant and all of us who have had real chinese food know it's not really chinese food but as far as far as uh as the as sort of rural America goes, or 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 regional, you know, or that typical America goes, this was like a new thing. And so, seeing people standing online for chain restaurants, that was a tip off to him that this was a you know this was a trade. 
uh, and there's other, lots of other examples. So part of it is that Peter Lynch element, and then by the social media made them more effective. It became what he could pick up from any, you know, just through social media, which wasn't just confined to his geographic space. That was quite interesting, actually. That bit about social arbitrage was the term he used. Yeah, it's his term, social arbitrage. But but he he also said that there was this thing about focusing on stuff off the radar where the typical Wall Street types wouldn't pick up. Yeah. Because it it doesn't doesn't get to be. We'll go out for dinner at at, at P.F. Chang, you know, I can tell you. Was that a surprise finding him? Yeah. uh, I mean, the big surprise was his approach. This was something that never entered my mind as part of the trading universe. And, of course, his his results were extraordinary. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it was a surprise to find him. And and here to give credit uh, for listeners here, Steve actually uh, can take credit for having more influence on this book probably than anybody else by being the source for two of the traders in the book. And uh, and so, you know, that thank you for that because uh, they were certainly incredible traders or are incredible traders. I think it was two. I think it was uh, Amrit. And Algid, I, I think you, you, I think you, you were the source for both of those, I believe. Right. Okay. Okay. So, so if I, I haven't sent you the bill yet, have I? <laughs> you haven't. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd love that, Chris Camillo piece. I guess you know it's an indicator of where this world is going. You know, we talk also about the gamification of the business, and there are different types of people are coming in that are observing things very differently to what we had traditionally observed. However, I would talk about Jason Shapiro at this point because actually, you know, his um, observation of the commitment of traders report, I thought was very, very interesting as well. Obviously, readily available, CFTC released information that is there, and yet was watching that to be able to build up a contrary view of um, trade opportunity. Um, so I was very fascinated by by that because I think in your previous books, I don't think anyone else had been um, revealed, as it were, as having that type of strategy. There was one trader in hedge fund market wizards, a fellow by the name of Jimmy Baladimus, who, well, for context, we're talking here about Shapiro. He's a contrarian. He really just wants to fight where he feels. He wants to fight what he feels excessive sentiment on one side of the market. And uh, Baladimus uh, kind of shared that, although in a totally different approach. So he's not the first contrarian, uh, but his approach is certainly the only one of its type that, uh, that you know, in any of the market was books. Yeah, and, and a non-professional as such, right? It's, you know, very interesting to see what these guys are picking up upon. Yeah, uh, although he, in his career he did, he did work for hedge funds managing money within hedge funds um, as much as 600 million at one point, but became, you know, just didn't like it. He, uh, he, he hated, uh, he hated marketing. He didn't want to, he didn't want to be talking to investors. He, he just wanted to, you know, in fact, now he basically said, you know, he's just, he, he's a solo trader and, and he just won't do it. He said he, he doesn't care how much money is offered him to, to manage. If it requires hiring even one person, he won't take it. He just doesn't want to. He doesn't want to do that. Yeah, interesting that he was uh, essentially focused upon the emotional floor of others. I think was the was the quote. 
the emotional flaw of lovers, but as he strict as he points out, and he's talking about, so he's talking about well, just to give a little background here because you read the chapter, but obviously listeners haven't. So um, in his early career, just he went through like some of the original market wizards. He blew up his account twice. In other words, he went from a hundred thousand to say roughly a million, and each time totally blew it. Totally blew it uh, because. He, he was he hadn't learned risk management and he was just so he still had this contrary he's a very he's the type of guy who'll, who'll argue it he'll go to a cocktail party and if it's mostly Republicans he'll he'll take a liberal side and if it's taking so he just wants to argue with everybody you know so he's got that type of personality and attitude so it's not he was always had this contrarian streak in him except being a contrarian without money management, is like, uh, I don't know, being a race car driver without a brake. I don't know. Uh, so uh, it's not it's not a survivable situation. So he learned that. And then he recognized his flaws and he became very successful. He would see it in other people. So as one point, I'm going to paraphrase here. So he says this, this person that he worked with at one point was so – was a great contrary and indicator because – Whatever he had opinion, it would be really wrong, and uh, and so if he was if he was bullish, that was a sign he should be bearish. He mentioned one point where, in fact, this March, past March, where we had the collapse during COVID, uh, the, you know, there, there was a call, and this person was on it, and this person he said is usually bullish, so saying, "Well, we haven't seen market capitulation." Well, that was the exact that call was that night was the exact bottom of the market. And even though he didn't have a signal yet, he put on some position long just because this person said it. And he said, it's not that he was very clear. It's not that, you know, I'm better than him. It's he is who I was. I see myself in him. He's making the same mistakes I made back in the 90s. So it's that recognition. So it's not just seeing the flaws in others, the way he, the way Jason puts it, it's seeing the flaws and others, which are his flaws when he was a losing trader. So he recognized himself. Yes. Yes. And, and, and you know, ironically enough, in brackets on my notes for Jason Shapiro, I, I wrote that he's a contrarian who is possibly a counter contrarian. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he, he sees the contrarians and then, you know, he recognizes himself. Yeah. And that gives him the signal. Yeah, you know, it's 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 seeing it's just seeing the flaws of get well not so much he sees the flaws of people who are caught up in in the markets you know euphoria without a plan of of how to how to manage the risk. You mentioned about the blowing up there. I mean that stood out for me in the first book, and it stood out for me in every single book ever since. And it, it seemed, you know, it stood out for me in this book again, because almost everyone, not everyone, but almost everyone had early blow ups. Some had multiple blow ups. If they didn't have blow ups, they had sharp and deep corrections, you know, wake up calls. Um, and that was the thing. If I'm honest, that was the thing that I really got out of the first book that I'm not a total fruitcake. <laughs> you know, these guys who I think are the gods. A human, like you know, and therefore it, it almost reassured me. Yeah, and, and it, you know, what it, this was a surprise for me in the first book too is that even some of these ex- 
you know, like Marcus, Marcus turned 30,000 into 80 million. You know, and I know it's true because, you know, I, I, I actually worked at Commodities Corp for, for a bit of time, you know, so, um, he, so he was a legend, you know, back then. Uh, within the firm, nobody knew who he was. In fact, nobody, he, it was a, you know, no, I don't know if anybody would have known he existed that I read the book, even though he was their star trader probably of all time. But, but he, but, but even Mark, you know, who I thought was so extraordinary, he, he blew up multiple times, totally. He won't go into the stories, but he not only lost all his money at one time, but he even borrowed money from his mother and lost most of that. And he came from a low income background. So, I mean, it almost sounded like, you know, I, why did he ever continue? I mean, it sounded like, you know, I asked him that question in the interview. I said, didn't you ever think that maybe you just weren't cut out for this? And, you know, maybe you know, after failure, after failure, after failure. And he just said, no, I just knew there was, I just felt that I could do it. And so part of the lesson, you know, one lesson is that early failure doesn't mean necessary long-term failure. And the other lesson, I guess, is to be, you know, to be a market wizard, you have to have uh, perseverance. I think that comes out in, you know, in every run story to, you know, it, I mean, this, you've got to be tough. Uh, there's there's no getting around it you know you've got to have incredible depths of reserve of of mental toughness yeah Um, yeah you have to have the right emotional state and capability and uh you know that aspect of it and something i know you kind of focus on a lot but that aspect of it is you know is critical so people think about trading in terms of being a system or method or i mean yeah that's involved but but the psychology, the psychological aspect of it is 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 extraordinarily important, and uh, you know, like I didn't know when I wrote your initial Market Wizards book that a good part of what I was going to be writing about was psychology. I'm, you know, I'm not trained in psychology or whatever, but the talking to these successful traders just naturally drove the conversation in that direction. Yeah, and I, I think in particular when I was reading Amrit's story, the the, the and of course, a lot of stuff we talk about, you know, present moment awareness and the strength of, of that, of having positive mindset. But the concept of a deep now, I thought was just uh, just so well said, um, you know, through meditation, through breath, having a, an emotional calm, being very centered, focused and uh, avoiding negative mindset where, you know, positive mindset was his core strategy, uh, along with calmness. And boy, he came out with some stuff. Yeah, I mean, he's one. There are a few traders in, in in the book who really put a tremendous amount of stress on the having the right mindset, and uh, and Amrit is certainly uh, up there and maybe foremost on that. And the amount of preparation he does to be in the right emotional state, and keeping records, you know, keeping notes, you know, for years and years, hundreds if not thousands of pages of notes of the trades he's taken, and you know, and and being able to use that as a, as an indication to his own mind, yeah, his own stability and emotional state. So, uh, yeah, so the deep now, which is a good phrase, does describe the way he tries to get himself when he's when he's trading what he perceives to be a major opportunity. He wants to get in that state where it's not emotional. It's he's calm. He's prepared. Uh, it's very much like a professional athlete. 
We hope you're enjoying this podcast. Uh, at this point in the uh, in the interview with Jack, Jack left us for a few minutes just to go and check out the market close. So just a chance to quickly tell you about our podcast partner, the Society of Technical Analysts. The Society of Technical Analysts, the STA, are the world's oldest body for the advancement of uh, technical analysis and price action, education, research and knowledge. They provide outstanding services for their members, including top quality education programs and as a not-for-profit body, they are not there to rip you off, just provide outstanding insights and learning. So please do check out the STA. Their website is sta-uk.org. Now let's go back to the podcast, just to quickly give you a little bit of context. When Jack came back, myself, Mark and Jack had a quick discussion. So what you hear now follows on from that discussion. We had, we had a, a great chat there about being in the zone and that deep now about Amrit. And I think, uh, personally, I was really, really pleased that, that that message was put out there because even for professionals, you know, that inner game nature of, of strength uh, and it's uh, becoming your edge is, there's a great lack of it, I think, in the professional world. Well, there's a, there's, yeah, there's a, it's interesting. The whole thing about emotions, the training, the, the, perception of what what trading looks like or what the emotional state of trading looks like is probably overly influenced by Hollywood. <laughs> you know, where if you got if you took if you were to turn a camera on Amrit, it would be godly dull, you know. It'd be, you know, focused and just sitting still, right? Wouldn't make very good film copy. Uh, but people have this image of, you know, yelling and screaming and emotions and fortunes being lost and made and, you know, it, it makes it makes good it may make entertaining film but it doesn't it doesn't have anything to do with successful trading so if they make the film about market wizards it's going to be a guy sitting there for hours <laughs> never been one done which i don't think you could do it but you know you know what you, you you made a good point there and it was something i think that was in your interview with with peter brandt um and you kind of have a different opinion on on emotions in trading you you i think you said that you think they're better being suppressed or oh i think I, no 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 i think it, it that was aimed through the john netto i think i know what you're referring or john netto okay john netto yes so he's you know so his thing he finds emotions useful in trading and um you know i say well you know like i've written every book i've written i've tried to make the point that you try to get emotions out of trading it's really detrimental and you know i said you want to get emotions out of trading he said why would you want to do that? <laughs> and his point was um, that he uses emotion. He uses his own emotions, monitoring his own emotions as a signal. So if you know he also, he said it's not good if he's overly fearful or overly you know overly you know think of boy this trade is this you know like he, let's say he goes long and the trade's going in his way. So oh this is going to the moon I can't lose and he wants to put on more. That being overly ebullient about a trade uh, in an emotional sense, not in an intellectual or preparation sense or analytical, but in an emotional state, is a signal to him that it's probably going to correct the other way at that moment. So he he monitors his own emotions as a signal that if he's getting too euphoric, that's a warning sign. So when he says, why would you want to get emotions out of trading? That would take away one of his indicators. But that's a difficult thing to do. You know, I think for most people, 
you're just best off not having emotions at all because I don't think very many traders would be capable of monitoring their own emotions for when it's going the other way. Although he does it and um, and it can't be, presumably can be used, but it, it's a tricky thing to pull off. See, I, yeah, I, I tend to sort of agree with him that, you know, most of the best traders I, I know actually embrace their emotionality. And, and that way they, they learn to live with it. They learn to recognize when they're going on a tilt state, which is the, you know, the, the real down, down, downside or danger of emotion. And also they, they, I think unconsciously recognize when they're going into flow states. And, and then a great trader, what they do is they, they can, uh, to use the, the term, lump it on when they're in that flow state. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah. So, no, I, I don't disagree. And in fact, I, I kind of point out in chapter that while it seems we're kind of on opposite ends, it's really, there's no disagreement. I mean, the way Neto is using emotions, and as you've experienced with traders you've coached, uh, makes sense. But generally speaking, uh, Emotions for most people, emotions will lead them astray. I mean, we're talking yeah. about a very sophisticated type of trader where they've gotten to the point where they can sort of like almost out of body experience, uh, sort of look at themselves and say, you know, you're going on, you're going, you're going too, too extreme uh, and recognize that. But for most people, emotions are, oh, this market's going to run away. I'm going to miss it. I better get in now. Uh, or, uh, you know, I, I, I want to have a really big position. So, yeah, you know, it, yeah, it's a bit risky, but I'm going to make a ton of money in this. I'm going to really increase my position. Or uh, they're, they're losing, and they're at a point where they should get out. Uh, it's already exceeding their risk, but they, oh, I'm going to get out right at the bottom. So I'm talking about all those emotions, getting people's. Yeah. But if someone's sophisticated enough to kind of recognize that in themselves, then that's. That, that, that's phenomenal because, uh, you know, when you talked about, and I think it was Jason Shapiro, recognizing the emotions in someone that's a representation of him, that was almost him reading what would have been. So he knows how he would have reacted had he been that guy. Yeah. And, and that's that's a way that I've, you know, I, I used to do that when I was a trader. I used to, um, you know, you, you would just, I mean, that was the beauty of being in the trading room, which most of these guys don't have, which is, I suppose, unfortunate. But Jason's been clever in that he uses CNBC as that proxy. Yeah. You know, was, when I, yeah. I was in a trading room, we'd, we'd see certain guys, you know, that were struggling and, and you knew that they didn't know they were being like this, but you knew that was a signal that the market was just going to carry on going that way, probably until they panicked out of it. And then that was probably a short-term loan. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and a lot of traders I know have talked about doing that over the years in the office, using reading the emotions of others around them um, because they recognize that within themselves. Yeah, that's what Jason essentially was saying. Yeah. But it, it, you know, one of the points we were talking about when you disappeared, and we were, one of the things we were talking about that was particularly relevant to this book, possibly more than others, was that everyone in this book Eats what they kill. Yeah, and that's the theme of the book. I was looking for solo traders who just, you know, earning a living or more than earning a living. In many cases, uh, earning a fortune, but then you know, they're not managing other people's money. They're they're not getting any income anywhere. They're 
They're basically, and in some cases, it gets pretty close, like the uh, one systematic trader I have, uh, uh, basically just, you know, for now, for over 20 years, been, you know, earning a living uh, uh, office trading. And and the, the hard point, and it, and it comes across, and I thought the title, I don't know if the title, if I use it as a title, but he certainly says, don't quit your day job. Because yes. even though he's been successful, uh, there was a point in time where he had a bad streak for like two years, you know, a drawdown. And it's, you know, even though he had made money, but he was spending money for a living, he's paying taxes, you know, and all of that. So people forget that money's coming out for taxes, money's coming out for living expenses. So it's not just that, it's not just that you're, you're not far from your all-time high. You could still be in danger of getting knocked out of the game if you don't don't continue to produce profits, because then then you've got expenses still piling on, and you've spent a good deal of your money paying off your profits have gone to pay off taxes and so forth. So it's a difficult thing to do. Yeah, and I, and I think there was someone in there as well. Um, I think it was Pavel, who he literally does eat what he can. He lives off his. What he earns as a trader, yeah. And um, I thought, by the way, his the the chapter title, which you used for him, may be the best one you've used in any of your books. The, the bellhop who beat the pros. Oh yeah, yeah. The bellhop. I mean, the title wise, yeah, yeah. I mean, his return, and and even though he's trading a small amount of money, because for, you know this is a guy out in the Czech Republic who used to be a a bellhop until uh, he started making. He started trading after about a year. He quit his job. This is now like. I don't know, uh, 15 years ago, whatever, 13 years ago. But in any case, he's uh, he's just every year, he's basically he's eating his provio. His count didn't go up much because he's living, he just, he's earning a living trading, basically. Yet he's trading very large cap stocks. So you could be trading a much larger account, but he's not managing anybody's money. And this is a guy who had very little money to start. So, uh, you know, he's still managing an account that's that's relatively small. Yeah, and for him, I think it stood out that work ethic and appropriate risk management and I guess appropriate size of trade too was was, was so necessary for his plan to work. Yeah, he's yeah certainly has the risk management side uh, and he developed the methodology that he didn't want to hold any positions overnight. So he developed the methodology that, that, you know, you, that was day trading, but in a way where most day trading has the... Uh, has a drawback of trans, um, not these transaction costs uh, eat up a lot of the potential profit. Uh, and by transaction costs, I mean mostly the bid ask spread, not not the um, uh, you know not necessarily commissions. Uh, but he he trades times where there's high volatility, so he can he can trade just uh, just for the day and be out of the position because he doesn't want to take the risk of being in anything overnight. No. No, I think uh, I guess I want to reflect back to Peter Bramp because there was a, a, a nugget of wisdom in and and that uh, discussion about get out on a Friday if if, you, if your position's on a net loss. I yeah. mean that is so important for people to hear that. So many people run that risk over the weekend, but there's there was a pattern he was following. Yeah, so I mean this is like you know in each book there you know some of the things overlap in advice and some are basically kind of new types of lines. And this advice of Peter is that if he's in a position that has a net loss on a Friday, he gets out. Uh, he can always get back in, you know. I mean, if uh, 
uh, at a later point. But the idea, if it's not working and you got a weekend, and he, because he considers the Friday price so critical, it's the most important price of the week. Because that's the price, he says, that's the price where everybody's committing to stay over the weekend with that position. And so where that price is, is, is the most important price. So if he's behind on his position at that point, then he just doesn't feel it's worth uh, carrying it over the weekend. That's a point here, Rich, I, I wanted to just bring in, because that that speaks to me of psychology again, of managing the mind, of making sure that you can, you know, I, I, I always used to have, you know, sleep trades. If you couldn't sleep or I wasn't going to sleep well, I'd cut them out and revisit them the next day. That's a sure sign that I think a line I have in the book is don't trade so large that fear dominates your trading. And if you're waking up worried about a position, that's your that's your that's your subconscious telling you you're too big. If you, yeah, if you're waking up worried about a position, your your size is too large. And, and and that's the theme again. You know, it's these books are about psychology. And I I took I opened the first book again, and I went to the first page of the the preface, preface, and I I. I I took a picture of, of what I read there, which I think sums up the whole series of books. It, it's what, and I'll read it out. It's what sets these traders apart. Most people think winning in the markets has something to do with finding the secret formula. The truth is that any common denominator among the traders I interviewed had more to do with attitude than approach. Yeah, I still, three decades later, I still agree with that, yeah. And I think three decades from now, we'll still be in agreeing with it. But the, the question I, I wanted to sort of lead into with that was, how should someone use the book? How should someone who's listening out there, who might be new, might be a few years into this, and, you know, they're starting to get it a little bit. How can this read in this? How, what should they not just take away with it, but what should they do with it? What would you advise? Yeah, so read it. And lines will hit you that apply to you. You know, you'll recognize. You know, in fact, uh, what I've been doing lately for you know uh, is putting out a quote a day from the book. And I had a, um, you know, maybe I can get it right here in a second instead of paraphrasing it. Um, let me just go to Twitter real quick. And because. This person had a response here, which I thought is, is so right. It's so on point to what you're saying. So uh, let's get it. Uh, uh, regarding, so this, this person wrote the following. He said, reading these quotes over the past few weeks, I have the same basic reaction to each of them. I am, one, guilty at one point or another of violating the rules, and two, they all seem to be confirmation of ideas I already know. Key theme, discipline wins the day. So I thought that was a great encapsulation uh, and exactly addresses, uh, exactly addresses your point. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. What is it, I mean, do, do you recognize some changes? I mean, obviously, you know, when you wrote that first book, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have mobile phones. Um, as you say, apart from... You know, there were some retail traders around, but most people were on trading floors, which we don't have anymore. Um, you know, and this year, just just as a one-off, we're not even in dealing rooms. Um, well, they're trading rooms, aren't they? We used to call them dealing rooms. Um, 
what what else have you noticed that's changed? Well, the big, the big change, the biggest change, of course, is computers and uh, the uh, entry to mass quant power in the markets. So back when I did the first market, well, we the first well the first market wizards book, you had you did have the PC, but for the for the talking to these traders about their their career up to that point, you know, much of it was pre-PC and uh, uh, and in just the beginning of the early years of the, of the uh, personal computer uh, and and sort of computing power. I mean, you know, I could think of somebody like Ed Sakota, uh, and he was talking about how he was one of these early trend followers, but he talked about getting jobs where you could use the mainframe. You know, we didn't have PCs yet. We would use an IBM 360. Now, why? He talked about that. Ironically, I knew about that because of my senior year in college when I was kind of doing these punch cards on, with, on econo, econometric models. You know, you'd have to, you know, that was an IBM 360. It filled the room and it was like less power, you know, way less powerful than, than an iPhone, you know, or anything else like that. So uh, these are kind of different days. Now we don't only have that, you know, not only have the, the PC, but we have supercomputers and we have... We have many firms out there that have literally scores, if not hundreds, of of high powered quants. You know, mathematicians, physicists, uh, astrophysicists, whatever, um, computer scientists, and so you have this massive uh, power, both uh, intellectual and and the, the 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 computers, the hardware themselves itself. So that is definitely a, a big change. Uh, many strategies that that are run now by hedge funds couldn't be run. They were impossible to run back in the days of the first market wizards book. You know, so that's I think the big the biggest change in the markets. And of course we've had moving from its to uh electronic trading is another really big change. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I mean do do you see I mean further changes ahead? We obviously got, you know, AI um, is coming in, and that's going to be another change. And uh, yeah, uh, so AI, yeah, you know, AI has been there, and I, I, I'm sure there's money being made on AI. There's also, I'm sure, money being lost on AI because, like anything else, it's a tool. And the markets, while they have certain has certain qualities that don't change, uh, because after all, people are it's people who are trading the markets and. There's a certain element of unimotion that influences everything, that and that that won't change, you know, in a century or more, uh, or a thousand years for that matter. But uh, so something like AI, yeah, it's a tool. But again, marks are always changing, so the AI has to be adaptable as well, which it's supposed to be. But there are problems there too about overfitting and so forth. So uh, uh, you may get a point. It's the, the analogy here is to computers and, and chess. So uh, there used to be a time where people thought it was impossible for a computer program to be a chess master. You know, of course, we've now a number of years passed the point where even the, the best chess player in the world cannot cannot compete against uh, a computer because it just can try out so many different uh, combinations so quickly because it's super super com- processing computers processing. So the question becomes, will the markets ultimately get to that point? And I think it's hard, you know, I won't, I won't say never, but it's, 
it's a much more complex thing than chess. Now, sure, chess has like an extraordinary number of possible moves and all that, but still, there are well-defined rules. In a sense, in a sense, chess may be like uh, like uh, planetary motions and figuring out the effect of all the planetary motions on each other. It may be a complex mathematical problem, but there are the all the planets are following the same physical rules. Every chess game has the same rules. The thing with the markets is, is the rules don't you know change. The rules change. So you go through period. You know there may be one period where money supply is a big deal, and and you know there'll be in another period where where money supplies are relevant. You'll have times where stocks and bonds move together in this time, so where stocks and bonds move in opposite directions. So the markets are going through all these changes, and how they re, how it responds to different factors is always changing. And the factors that are important are always changing. And their scores, if not hundreds of factors, that might be affecting the market. So the complexity of the market problem far exceeds uh, the complexity of, uh, of, of chess. There's a great point about that, because if you think about this complexity, and then you've got some guys who are still making millions doing very simple things that people were doing 30 odd years ago. And they're like featured in the yeah. yeah. So, so, so yeah, it's the, the, there are certain elements in there that there are certain elements about markets that are still there. They won't go away. Like, uh, for example, uh, trends, you know, trends, trends will exist because if, if, if central, a central bank changes its policy, it's not going to flip back and change the policy two days later. So these things can last for years. The thing, of course, is in recent decades, the markets have, because so many people try trend following, the markets have these enough whipsaws to make it very difficult to make money that way. But the general trends still exist. So as an example, if you recognize that and yet can trade with the understanding that, that you can get the markets whipping around uh, and deal with that in a risk management sense, you can then extract money from a trend, but it's more difficult to do. Uh, and the same thing with, with charts. Um, charts, basically, the rationale for charts is the, the price chart reflects all the participants. It reflects all the market information. So that's the reason why there's information there. And there are patterns. Now, the patterns have a small edge. So even, you know, like, for example, um, you know, a casino or a game like blackjack or something, doesn't have an enormous edge. It has a one or two percent edge. That's not really a lot. But the point is, they're making they're taking that side so many times that you get a very good performance. Uh, it's not that they know that any particular bet is going to go their way. They were using probabilities. And the same thing sounds like chart analysis. You know, they might just if you're good at it, you have experience, you can pick points where it is, the probabilities are over time you'll make money. But of course, that has to be married to very strong risk management. And, and that's that's the thing that comes through in the book all the time about the importance of risk management. And that, that that's come through in every single book. Yes. And, and I guess this is one of the great takeaways for, um, for uh, people who, who, who are new to trading. And, and if any of my clients are listening out there, they'll know how often I bang on about getting this management, risk management right. You know, you, you could be the greatest forecaster in the world. If your risk management is screwed up, you're not going to win. Simple as that. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, risk management, as almost every trader I, I ever interviewed, successful trader I ever interviewed, would stress that risk management is more important than their method. It comes up repeatedly, time, whether they're fundamentalists or technicians or whatever. Uh, this is just a message that comes across all the time. Critical stuff for those entering the market. Huh? Right. One other question, which really, again, really stood out in the book, and again, it's a it's a point that you've made all along, and it's about this idea of matching your trading to your personality. Yeah. So, uh, you know, again, it's a lot of these things are sort of counter to people's intuition of what's what's right or what's important, and. You know, I think novice people who are novices to trading come into it thinking, yeah, right, there's there's a you know, okay, so there's a way to trade the markets, I can figure that out, and it's gonna be a money machine. And they think it's all about finding some some special secret method. And totally miss the point that there's completely diametrically opposite methods that can work or not work. And it's not about finding a special type of method that has better than everything else. Is finding a method that works for you based upon what, what your inclinations are, what your beliefs are, uh, what seems to resonate with you, what seems to work for you, what you're comfortable trading. So, and it's different for everybody else. You know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's like I, I've often used the analogy. It's like you wouldn't go buy a suit and ask somebody who is well dressed and saying, "Hey." What size suit do you wear? You know, well, if they happen to be the exact same size as you, it might work. But the odds are they're not the exact same size. So what they, what, what they, whether it's the exact size for them is no reason that you expect it to work for you. Fascinating, isn't it, really? And I think uh, one of the things that also stood out to me is that if you're in this game, you've got to love it. Yes. Yes. And you that's – <laughs> yeah, you know, if you're – if you're going into markets because you want to make a lot of money, that's the wrong motivation. Uh, you know, people who are really successful do it because it's a passion. It's uh, it's something that in many cases they started even in their teen, teenage years were interested in the markets and uh, began in some cases began trading as early as that. So uh, uh, the the language they use are is stuff like three-dimensional chess games or uh, puzzles with 10,000 pieces where people are throwing in new pieces and taking out some old pieces. They're game-like analogies, and, and that's the attitude that works. And I, I mean, you know, they talk about, like Camillo here talks about how much he loves that when he gets an idea, you know, just kind of completely focusing and spending spending just all his time trying to, to work it out that uh, – this is not something he's doing because he wants to make a lot of money. He's doing it because he loves doing it. It's a it's a game. Oh, it's it's, it's fascinating. I, and you know, we've got so many sound bites that just come out of this book. It's it's, it's almost ridiculous. One of the ones I, I I like is if you're in a trade that's a hope trade, <laughs> get out of it. <laughs> But yeah. there's so many people that are willing on a trade and looking at a screen to, to, to sort of you know, move the thing along. But crumbs, it means there's just no, there's been no research. There's been, there's been no pre- preparation for the trade. But it's well, very common. Yeah, well, the, 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 very, the very nature of it, uh, that it, if it's hope, that's, that's a dominant feeling. That's, that's a warning signal. So this, I think, came out of Hamrit's chapter, I think that particular quote, 
So uh, in, earlier in his trading career, uh, he took uh, three. He, he took a position which was uh, even though he waits for the exact trade, yeah, certainly now, but he took a marginal type of trade. He worked for a prop shop. He took a full. He took his maximum position. And to make matters and even worse, he then put full full out limit positions on two other markets which are highly correlated. So he had a triple position on a what is essential was essentially a marginal trade idea. And the risk manager came over to him and said, Hammond, what are you doing? And all of a sudden he realized that that he was hoping he, he put all this on hoping it would work. He got out of everything, you know, instantaneously. And uh, you know, sort of made for the rest of his ever since then, made him conscious that if if it's hope that's dominating a trade, that's a sign that, that it's that it's not good. Yeah. Can I, I got a question, which is, um, what, I, I think you mentioned somewhere in the book that you feel that most successful traders you come across are discretionary traders. Um, and yet the most successful trader of the past 30 years is Jim Simons, who's, as we know, systematic. Although I, I point out to people, you know, he's on a different level and he wasn't an overnight success either. It took about 12 years well, for him to get that Well, there's going. a difference there, okay? So it turns out that, you know, there are exceptions like Simons or Ed Thorpe, who I interviewed in Hedgefront Market Wizards, who, who literally have the best return risk records, you know, possible. Uh, so that's certainly true. Uh, but generally speaking, and in fact, in this book, everyone is a discretionary trade except for one exception. Uh, I mean, they may use some systematic approaches to as tools or whatever, but ultimately, at the end of the day, they're discretionary traders. Because uh, it's very hard to get a system that that can be as good as a good discretion, as, as a as a top-level discretionary trader. Now, you're pointing out Simons and like Ed Thorpe, who I interviewed, David Shaw, who I interviewed uh, in another book. The difference is those, those traders, let's tell the audience, give the audience a feel of what they're doing. It's not the system in the traditional way we think of it. What they basically have, and, and Simons himself, now Simons is a brilliant mathematician, but he hired scores of other mathematicians and what they're doing, and of course, he's totally, totally secretive and everything else. Uh, there is a really good book out there uh, on, uh, on Simon's, the, uh, something, the formula to beat the market. I forget the exact, but there is a book that came out of past year, beautifully done book, because I appreciate it. I couldn't get Simon's to agree to do an interview ever. And the fact that he not only eventually got him, but he got all these people to, to, to talk. I thought it was a, and he did a very good Excellent narrative job. So the book Jack is talking about here is the man who solved the market: How Jim Simons launched the Quant Revolution by Gregory Zuckerman. You can hear Greg Zuckerman talk about Jim Simons in our podcast episode from the 14th of January, 2020. My hats off to that book. Uh, but bottom line, these approaches, what they're doing is you have all these brilliant mathematicians looking for, you know, they're not trying to get patterns, you know, that are. One pattern's going to make you all the money. They're, they're probably doing hundreds of different types of things. Um, and not only that, in many cases, the strategy might include trading thousands of different securities, outright uh, uh, options, uh, futures, FX, you know, and relationships between them. And they're looking to extract little bits of money just from all of these patterns. So 
it's extraordinarily complex. It's not something that is doable by a single person. It's there are still inefficiencies in the market. They change and they're hard to find. But if you have enough brain power and you put enough of these together, then you can come up with something like that. So, uh, but it's not it's not something any single trader can duplicate. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean that's. Uh... I think that's apparent. I did try and build my own system many years ago, but it, right. it didn't suit my personality, which which really comes back to that point about personality. You know, I was never going to be able to live with the drawdowns that this system was yeah. suggesting was going to be part of it. I actually, for a time, went that direction because I wanted to get, I thought it was a way to get rid of emotions. And to the extent it is, but what I found was that then you were kind of, if you're purely staying with a system, absolutely, then you're at the mercy of what the drawdown is going to be. You lose a, you lose some of that risk control. So, and I was very uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable with that. So, ironically, while I went to it because I thought it was a way of eliminating emotion, I found for myself that it was actually uh, could it be <laughs> could just have the opposite effect. It could make it more emotional. Uh, so, I ultimately decided that. Uh, having a being discretionary and be able to define what risk I was willing to allow for a trade at the outset was a more comfortable fit. Again, it's what fits your personality. Yeah, it looks as though, you know, the the principles of the first book are still very clear in, in, in the current book. And, you know, not, not a great deal has changed. I, I mean, from my view, I know some of the technologies changed, but a, a core level of traders, the, the vulnerabilities are still there. the The absence of um, you know appropriate process still, or the importance of appropriate process still stands out. Um, you know the importance of risk management still still stands out. And we're now starting to realise the importance of self, a uh, development of self in, in the complexities of markets is, is is as vital, perhaps more vital now than it's ever been. Perhaps we're we're realising now that it's vital. And perhaps have not realised that the softer skills were actually part of, uh, um, you know, building building our edge. Are you, are you, we, are you, would you agree with that, Jack? That it's like to feel that way that we're, we're well, yeah, realise these things. The general general uh, comment of, of not much has changed is, you know, as we talked about before, is because certain traits are there are certain traits that are conducive to being successful in the markets and traits that are conducive to the to being of to, to, to failing. And and those traits, you know, they that that has not changed over time, regardless of how much else has changed. So uh, so it would be natural to expect overlap in the principles one might draw from the Marco Wizard's book, you know, written 30, 32 years ago, versus you know one written now. Yeah, it's a massive, massive lesson for uh, people entering the market that uh, you know, these these core principles are vital to learn at the beginning of the journey, um, and, and just realise what they are for their own personality, uh, and applying these rules. So, um, again, we can't uh, I think emphasise that enough. What three things do you think a trader should really look to learn from unknown market wizards? Well, the top three, well. You always have to put risk management first because without risk management, success is not possible, right? So it's uh, or I mean, success is possible, 
but ultimately it'll 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 be a crash and burn in all likelihood. So I would say if there's anything that's absolute to successful trading is you have to have an effective risk management approach. Uh, second would be uh, that I think ultimately we talked about before is you have to develop a methodology. It has to have an edge. And these are a couple of things really all wrapped up into one. Uh, and that approach has to fit your personality. So it's it's not a shoot from the hip approach. It has to be something that's well-defined. It has to be something that has demonstrated through <clears throat> your equity going the right direction is effective. And it has to be something that you're comfortable with. So so that 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 is a uh, that is another uh, critical one. And, and ultimately... Almost everyone, if not everyone I've ever interviewed that's successful, has strong discipline, and uh, and uh, you just need you need iron core discipline, you know. So uh, uh, you know, sort of like a trader in his book is an ex-marine, is the ex-marine that I've had in the market uh, with his book. So the Marines go. The image of a Marine does go with discipline, and, and it's no accident. It's 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 fascinating though that some of them didn't have discipline, yeah, but they well, got there eventually. Yeah, so like we talked about Shapiro, right? He didn't have discipline, and what happened? He wiped out two times. Yeah, so it wasn't until he got and he he says in the book, and you know, he says, "I will never, ever, ever, ever go against my stop." You know, I absolute no way you could put a gun to his. He is. He decides where he's going to be out of a trade. If it's at that point, he's out. There's no question. It doesn't make a difference. Any, nothing else matters. So he had to go from this lack of discipline, uh, this fighting the market, to to the exact opposite to be successful. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, that's just such. That's one of those stories which I think you capture so well. This kind of the human nature of trading, the human part of it. You know, I mentioned it earlier that the fallibility that we have as individuals you know and and how we somehow think i, I don't know it's like it's like we, we almost forget ourselves i mean i remember when i was you know when when i first read your books and i i think i used to read all of them every two or three years and and i used to come across a point where i think i, I must i must make a note of that and then i realized on the next page that i'd actually made a note and I was doing the same thing. And it was right. like, and that's exactly, yes, before uh, about what people can get out of it. One of the main, one of the main things is by reading this book, you can, and like the quote I read you from somebody else who replied to a tweet, uh, you can recognize mistakes that you yourself make. And uh, by noting them and being more aware of them, well, you'll probably still make those mistakes in the future, but at least you'll make them less often. And and the best yeah. the, the best method to become a better trader is to ideally eliminate, but at least reduce reduce repeating the same mistakes and uh, learning from your mistakes. Yeah. And this is this learning from mistakes is something that comes up in this book quite a few times, and uh, it's something that's come up in other books. Ray Dalio, in particular, I think it's almost. Uh, you know, worships at the altar of learning from mistakes. Yeah, his principles. Can I can I ask you a question? And it it may seem slightly controversial to some. Um, and I know you tried to get 
to find right. some female traders yeah. to be in this book. Um, cause, cause you asked me and I, I did send a couple, but I think they were from yeah, institutions and you wanted to do one of them. And I, so I, I, I yeah. always would like to get more women in the book, you know, in this book, there are none. And I did interview because, but again, the problem there was, I mean, the person was a good recommendation and she had a, in some sense, a fascinating story. I love the grit, her grit and everything else. Uh, and I would have loved to include it for that. But ultimately, when I had the book, you know, the, and I had her, I did do the interview, but, you know, essentially this was a book of solo traders and sort of a head manager just didn't yeah. fit thematically. More, moreover, in, her, in this particular case, her approach was pretty eclectic. Now, I could deal with that. And if that was the only impediment, I would have dealt with it. But the combination of not fitting the theme of the book and having a very eclectic approach, which most traders would not at all relate to, uh, just to say, well, it's just not a fit for this book. Uh, but yeah, so as you've noted, I, I certainly would like to include more. The people here were self-employed and self-starters. They, they weren't, they, there was nothing that said, you know, no reason why um, it, it couldn't have been a woman, but there, there just seems to be very few fe- yeah. women retail traders. Uh, yeah, uh, there, I mean, there even, some, even hedge fund managers, I, uh, I mean, now there's much, you know, there's more certainly than it used to be. Uh, but part of this is, remember, I'm looking yeah. for typically traders with 10 plus years, you know, and in some cases in these in these book in this book, 20 or 30 years of experience or track record. And so, you know, uh, if you go back, women who've had long, you know, it's not not easy to find women with long term track records that are spectacular because uh, there aren't that many women with long term track records to begin with. So, uh, you know, maybe 10 years from now it will be different. Yeah. But even now, it's, it's difficult. Uh, and when I put out, when I did my tweets asking people for Rex Afton and Warner Whistles book, and I'm like, uh, maybe that's the way, maybe you responded to that particular, maybe that's how I, maybe it's how, I forget if that's how we connect or not. Um, I, I know my daughter's always asking me, Dad, why are you not having more female traders on the podcast? And, and I do actually, we did reach out to Linda and I was going to, I was going to um, reach out to her again at some point soon because she was a phenomenal yeah, trader. I think she was in, second, she was in your yeah. first or second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there, there are some out there, but uh, I, I wonder if it's just a, a profession that doesn't that women uh, aren't attracted to. That you know, I, it probably is changing now, but certainly historically yeah. has been true. It's been a very, I can't think of a not many professions you can think of that there. Are more male dominated than trading. Yeah, it's it's strange, but as you say, maybe that maybe maybe that'll be a future book. I'd be very happy to do uh, women walker wizards. Well, listen, maybe maybe you'll get a few yeah, reactions sure. to I'm this. Always, uh, I'm very open minded, <laughs> and, and, and ironically, and I, you know, I kind of believe that women are, are probably better suited to be good traders than men, because I think a lot of male dominated. Uh, instinctive uh, traits are counterproductive, uh, like, you know, aggression, uh, and men are more aggressive. I don't think that's necessarily good for trading. Um, you know, men tend to be probably more uh, more stubborn, <laughs> you know, something like, you know, yeah. less flexible. Uh, although the really good ones who I interview are flexible. But, but women, I think, have certain traits that are more amenable to being good traders, 
but I just think it's a matter of way things have evolved, and it will probably change. You know, so uh, yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I see some on FinTwit who are out there who do seem to be very good, and, and maybe that's I, I don't know. Maybe they're just hiding away and don't want to put themselves out there. It's uh, it's quite a scary thing putting themselves out for an interview. I know I know. I spoke to a few traders who other traders who are phenomenal and they were really you know they, they didn't want to say yeah. their names for example they wanted to do it but didn't want to say that and, and i know you insist on always oh, having the name know, it, and the, it, the back it would have been possible you know i it's more important i just have to verify the track record uh so if somebody was only willing yeah. to do it anonymously uh you know i would have probably been open to that because the after all I, the, this whole book is filled with people who nobody knows anyway. So the name is almost, and in fact, yeah. in Shapiro's uh, chapter, because he made many kind of very uh, tough comments about people, uh, he asked me to use pseudonyms. So, so, you know, that whole chapter is filled with pseudonyms. So I'm not so tied to, to having an absolute name. If I could verify the track record and somebody uh, wanted to be anonymous, that probably, if it was a good enough story and a good enough track record, that probably wouldn't be a deal breaker. Markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. <laughs> yeah, but it was within Jason's piece, I think, wasn't it? Um, yes. But yeah, it, it it's a beast. It's difficult. I mean, I always compare markets to like the murmuration of starlings. It's got depth. It's got beauty. It goes out of shape. It comes back into shape. And if you're in the game, you're, you've got to be pretty tuned up to what's going on because you're on that ride. And I think as you've started to conclude from, from some of these stories, you've got to love being in that game because um, so much can go wrong super, super quickly. And you've got to have the intellect to, you know, like get, get out rapidly when you can. And um, I think that comes through beautifully in, in these stories. And, and, and I've said it several times, but there are so many lessons in this. There are almost too many lessons for us to even, you know, do this within a 24-hour period, this sort of podcast. You know, your, your 40, um, 40 tips or 45 tips or whatever at the end of the book is a book in itself, you know, in terms of a, a short guide to what you need to know if you're going to become into this market. So... Um, I think we appreciate the the effort. You know, you've you've curated these stories that are so important for us to even go back in time and compare. You know, and think actually, there's a lot of stuff that just not changed here. And um, are people, despite the technology, making more money? Well, actually, they're still making the same mistakes. Um, and there's some big lessons that we should learn. So we, we we've got to thank you for that. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Jack. And good luck when the book comes out next week. I know so many people have ordered it yeah. already. So, you know, it's and, and how it's can people be a find splash. you, Jack, if they if they want to follow you on Twitter and on your website? So on Twitter, it's uh, it's at Jack Schwager, just my name. And uh, if it's a website, it's uh, jackschwager.com. So everything's my name, kind of, and 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 funseater.com. You know, in terms. Fantastic. And of course, the book is The Unknown Market Wizards by Jack Swager. And we encourage everyone to go out and get a copy. Well, thank you. 
Thank you for listening today and thank you to our podcast partner, the Society of Technical Analysts, the STA. Again, you can find out more about their excellent services, education programs and courses by visiting sta-uk.org. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to rate us and review us on iTunes, Spotify or whichever service you've used. More ratings and reviews helps other people find out about the AlphaMind podcast. You can also connect with us or follow us on social media at AlphaMind101 is one of our Twitter handles and at AlphaMind102 is the other one. You can also view our blog page, alphamindblog.blogspot.com where we have lots of articles, information about the podcasts and pages of books and other podcasts which we highly recommend. Finally, if you want to know more about us and our services, please go onto our webpage, alpha-mind.net or go to our individual pages, alphaarcube.com and markrandallconsultancy.com. That just leaves us to say have a great week and we look forward to you joining us for future podcasts. Thank you very much.